Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 410, Super Bowl 56 Reaction. Big Chillians, welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie, who looks quite refreshed for his four-day Super Bowl binge. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm feeling all right now. Uh, I think there was a real moment of tiredness on Saturday was tough. I think I was pretty low energy on Saturday, uh, and there were some pretty devastating nights out. I think Thursday, Thursday night, we were out until around seven, six, six or seven. And then Friday, we're out till eight, eight thirty, Uh, and then obviously the Super Bowl until this is AM, right? This is AM. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then Super Bowl Sunday out until, until four. So it was well five. So yeah, it was a pretty long weekend, but, uh, enjoyable, but long. Couldn't do it every week. That's for sure. Yeah. So I guess let's get right to it. How do you rate this Super Bowl overall? I thought it was a pretty bad Super Bowl. I think it I falls agree. into the category where <laughs> people are reacting like it was a good game because it was a close game. Yeah. And I think it's a mistake that people make a lot. But it was it was a poorly played game. I think it was a poorly coached game. I think it was a poorly officiated game. I actually just think there was really nothing good about it. There were still good plays made, and I'm not saying it was complete garbage. And I enjoyed it because it was close. You, it's, it kept you interested. I'd rather watch that than a 30-point blowout. But it definitely didn't feel like I was watching the two best teams in the NFL, and I definitely wasn't watching one of the best games of the season. Yeah, I completely agree. It, it was fun because it was close. But overall, I mean, you had a few really nice plays. The, the Jamar Chase catch... Uh, over Jalen Ramsey was really nice. Um, kind of just seeing Cup just take over the game on that last drive was was fun to watch. But it was missing a lot of high quality, spectacular plays or just overall great performances. You know, like Stafford was okay. He was Stafford. You know, he had some nice throws, but then he also had some terrible throws. Uh, Staff- you know. St- Stafford was good in the first half. And, and honestly, you, you can kind of almost track his and their offense's performance pre-OBJ injury and post-OBJ injury. Yeah. I think – and that game – and then genuinely, I think that that injury ch- totally changed the game. I think that game was on course to be a complete blowout until OBJ got injured because I think until the Bengals OBJ found – blew them- out his knee. <laughs> yeah. Because I think the Bengals found themselves in a situation where they couldn't cover both OBJ and Cup. And then as soon as OBJ was gone, as it turned out, they couldn't still totally cover Cooper Cup. But they did actually manage to pretty much keep Cooper Cup out of that game up until that final drive. I know he had the touchdown catch prior to that, but fundamentally he was not some sort of main offensive weapon for the Rams until they realized the season was on the line, Super Bowl was on the line, and if they were going to go down, they were going to do go down trying to get the ball to Cup at all costs. And I actually kind of respect the Bengals for doing the thing that we almost, well, we've criticized a lot of teams for not doing. They knew that that was the game plan. They threw two or three defenders on him 
and they just manhandled him across that full drive. And I know that Bengals fans are upset upset about the officiating on that final drive. I thought the, uh, the, the officiating on that final drive was pretty fair. I think all the flags that th- were thrown were correct. But I don't blame the Bengals for deciding. Because in, in the end, I think they got away with actually a number of additional penalties. Because there's, there's, a, there's a moment where you think, if we hold him or interfere with him on every single play, they're not going to call all of them. So, okay, we get called on one, but we can just keep doing it, and maybe that's going to lead to a turnover or to them p- pressure building on Stafford. Yeah, I guess since you brought it up, we can kind of discuss that and get it out of the way with the officiating. So the officiating was looked like it was – erring on the side of lenient. They were going to let them play, kind of get grabby hands, whatever. And that's fine. I don't mind that at all. What bothered me, well, one, the the, the worst, I guess, non-call was the Jalen Ramsey offensive pass interference face mask uh, ripping by T. Higgins. That kind of... You, you say worst non-call. I think that's one of the worst non-calls I may have ever seen. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I, I don't know. What's interesting is the official came out and said that he recognized that the hand was at the face mask, but that he didn't like twist or turn it or something, which is just a bogus argument. If he had just said, I'd missed it. Sorry, I didn't have a good viewpoint. I didn't see it. I was watching the catch. I didn't see the hand on the face. I missed it. I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is that there's four other people on the field that are also looking at that play and didn't see it. You know, I can get the the sideline judge is maybe worried about the feet, the hands, whatever. You know, they're not looking at Ramsey's face mask. That's a weird place to be looking, I guess. But someone had to have seen that. Someone has but, to see but you that. But you say it's a weird place to be looking. He ripped his head around. I mean, it's not – there are face masks that are sometimes very easy to miss. You know, sometimes they show the replay and then you'll hear the crowd suddenly react because a face mask has been missed. But when you haven't really seen a major tug or it's in a, it's kind of in a melee of players, it's kind of difficult to notice it sometimes. But literally, Ramsey's head gets twisted completely around over the course of that play. And that's well, – he's, he's, he's got a weak neck. Let's be serious. No, but in all seriousness, though, Frank. And in, that's even without – it wasn't just a face mask. It was pass interference prior to the face mask. They could have thrown – they could have called either one, and it would have been a correct call. But I actually think the thing that ended up not leading to the call in some respects, it was so egregious that Jalen Ramsey barely reacts. I know. He, he didn't react thinks, at all. Because he just thinks this is an obvious call. Like, I've been thrown to the ground, including by my face mask. Of course, a flag is going to come out, and this play is coming back. And then all of a sudden, it was like, no, this play hasn't come back. They've just scored a 75-yard touchdown. And I think it was weird to watch because it did feel like when you watch the play, you're like, well, yeah, he's running into the end zone, but then we're going to get told a flag. There's a flag on the play, and he's going to be walking back. And... In a sense, not that Ramsey complaining would have changed anything, because obviously once they've not thrown the flag, not too much is going to change. But he just sort of looked bemused at the fact that this play was allowed to stand. Yeah. That was, I mean, that was just a terrible miscall. But then what I don't like is 
they seem to be letting them get away with things the entire game until that last two minutes. And that's always the part that kind of bothers me is you look back. I, I mean, you can look back on the Bengals first drive in the red zone. Ramsey grabs the guy's jersey in the end zone and kind of pulls himself back to knock the ball out on that third down it was like third and 10 on the 11 and they end up kicking the field goal. I, I am fine with that being a no call. It was a little bit of a grab. I mean, you can clearly see the shirts being pulled. It's, it's been a call to hold many times in the regular season. They don't want to call it. That's fine. But then the play was almost identical on cup where he has his arm around him, kind of pulls him a little, pulls himself back in and knocks the ball. And if you're not going to call that in the first quarter, you shouldn't call it in the fourth quarter just because it's the fourth quarter and it's an important drive. Because equally, that first drive could have been important. That, that's what bothers me is the inconsistency. It's like, it's, it's like baseball, right? If you know the strike zone, you know the strike zone. I disagree with you because I think fundamentally the Bengals left them with no choice because the, de- the Bengals were committing penalties on every play. So I think the difference is the idea of let them play, you can maybe do for a play. You can say, hey, there was a slight hold there on that, but fundamentally... This isn't soccer. This, fouls but, don't add up. <laughs> but they do. If you don't think fouls don't add up, in that you don't think, for example, for starters, before the game, they stick, they talk to officials and say, hey, you need to watch out for this. The fouls add up over the course of a season, and fouls add up over the course of a game. So if you don't think... I, I, I agree Cup, with that, if you don't I, think I Cooper think Cup, say that. If, if you don't think Cooper Cup is finishing a drive and saying... Hey, watch this. Look, I'm being I'm being held on every play. Like I can't, you know, you got to be kidding me here. And you're talking about one of the best wide receivers in the league going to an official and saying that. Of course, it's going to add up. And I think over the course of the sequence of plays over that, they might have said to themselves, "Our approach here is to let them play, but we can't allow them." to win this game by just committing penalty after penalty after penalty because we've decided to let them play. And on every single play down the stretch there, the Bengals were committing a defensive penalty almost every time directly on cup, including on one time when they did decide, tried to knock his head off on the back at the back of the head zone. So I think fundamentally the Bengals can't complain. They called that. I don't think there was, <laughs> no, I, that's not my point. My point is they could have, it was every play, but I think literally that's, every single play. I mean, I, that I don't know if I agree with. I mean, I didn't see the video or the statistics to see every play Cups being held. I don't mean – I mean down the stretch, Frank. Not every play over the course. Of the, look, they threw three flags on that on that drive alone. So, we, I mean, that was three out of the you know the 12 plays. They're throwing flags. And all of those flags only came in in the end when the field was compressed. So you're actually talking about three out of five. But uh, – the Bengals were just, and, and again, I don't blame them. They were doing what we asked teams to do, which was don't allow the one player they're throwing to to be the player who beat you. I think the thing you have to then give them, criticize them for is they allowed Cooper Cup to still be the player that beat them. I think yeah. that's the thing that would frustrate me as a Bengals fan is if you're going to do all that, keep doing it. Don't suddenly allow him to get open and in single coverage on a simple out route. I think that's the, the criticism I would have. Well, that also then brings in the Eli Apple uh, criticism. So he burnt Eli Apple on that play, and that was the second touchdown that Eli Apple was burnt on. The first one, he got so play faked, uh, he almost dove into the back, <laughs> into the uh, the offensive side there, and then realized he was supposed to be covering Cup, who was wide open seven yards in the end zone. But I don't know if you saw 
Eli Apple over the past few weeks has been taking shots at both the Giants, the Saints, because they let him go, as well as the Chiefs, because they beat them. And after this game, he was just getting it from everyone. Not only did players from the Giants kind of tweet at him, the Saints tweeted at him, uh, Michael Hardman and Tyreek Hill both tweeted at him, but you even had the Baltimore Ravens. <laughs> like, I don't know where they come into this picture, but they were taking shots at him. Like everyone in the NFL was just unloading on Eli Apple. And it's it's so funny to see, you know, like I don't, it just shows the type of person he is, right? There's a reason why he's been kicked off these teams because he had two weeks where he played okay and his team won. Not much to do about him. He had one good defending play against the Chiefs, but he's so adamant that he has to speak out in one good game he has, and then he just gets shot down when he plays like he normally does, which is shit. So I thought that was pretty funny to see, uh, just everyone taking shots. But getting back to the game, uh, did you think Cup was the MVP? Um, I will say in the moment, no. And then... Post game, as a kind of, I thought Don, I thought Donald was going to get it because I thought fundamentally that Donald had made. I know he only had three sacks, but in addition to those sacks, he had the the crucial tackle on the third down where he grabs the running back and he prevents him from what looked like he was going to get the first down. And then on the fourth down, the game ending play, it's him getting pressure on Burrow. So it kind of felt like I felt like he impacted. the The tough thing about that is. I guess it's difficult to give him as an individual the MVP when you consider just how bad the Bengals' offensive line is. So when they're letting pretty much everyone through, it's difficult to then say, well, yeah, well, Aaron Donald influenced it more. The the tackle to, to stop the first down on the running play is the one that kind of stands out on a play that maybe only he could have made. Um, but I'm yeah. fine with Cup. Stafford couldn't be the MVP because of the two interceptions, even though one of them wasn't his fault. Um, yeah, and also, and I mean, a bad, I, a bad throw that also took. It was his throw that took OBJ out of the game. So in a yeah. sense, he, his inability to hit a wide open receiver in that instance didn't lead to a turnover, but it did lead to a game changing injury. Yeah, and, and we've talked about this, I think, on previous podcasts. What it would take for the quarterback not to get the MVP and a receiver too. And it basically just have to be almost all of the accolades on the quarterback are due to that one receiver, which for the most part, once you took OBJ out of the game, once he took OBJ out of the game on his own, he was kind of left to it only being cup where it looked like OBJ was having a great game. And had they kept playing the way they were playing with the Bengals doubling up on cup and leaving OBJ in these nice areas, it could have been OBJ that could, I mean, he could have had a, a career day that game. Yeah, I mean, he already had the touchdown reception. He had, what, 55 yards or something like that. Uh, So, you know, yeah, he was on course for a 100-plus yard game and probably a couple touchdown receptions, which when you compare with Cup, I also think, I mean, this is the bad thing about the Super Bowl MVP and the regular season MVP award. So much of it is about star status. And I think if Matthew Stafford had been Tom Brady, if you see what I mean, if that's Tom Brady and he has exactly the same stat line, I think Tom Brady probably wins the MVP. Didn't Edelman get it one year? He got it against the Falcons, I think. Didn't he? Might have been. Um, but then that year, Brady had thrown a pick six. Yeah. You know, there there was there were some there were some other elements that had got into that as well. Uh, and Edelman but more often than not, it's Brady of, getting it. 
Yeah, and Edelman has one of the most iconic catches in Super Bowl history in that game, which was like the momentum shifting play. And I think that's the that's the kind of knock a little bit on this Cooper Cup. The only iconic play you'd give him is the the run play. And and even that's kind of stretching it. That's really going yeah. overboard and giving him too much credit. But there's no super memorable moments from Cooper Cup's performance. Not that he didn't play. He played very well. He did what Cooper Cup does, which is kind of just get open and churn over yards and get t- catch touchdown passes. But he, it's not, it's not like those moments where you go, oh, wow, that's the signature play from that Super Bowl. They're not his plays. Yeah, yeah. And I would have been perfectly fine with Donald getting it just for the fact that you're right, the numbers aren't dramatic, but you could tell the impact he was having on that game. That first half, they were at times triple teaming him. They had, like There was a few plays that had three guys trying to block him. I mean, that alone is opening up so much for everyone else. And then eventually they just did simple stunts to kind of exploit the fact that they were double and triple teaming him and then took it they destroyed them in the second half and they had what seven sacks in the second half. And that's mostly because of him being taking two, three guys with him at a clip and you have Von Miller rushing against some terrible O tackle one-on-one. He's going to beat him every time. So I, I would have been okay with Donald, especially what you said, the third down and the fourth down were extremely impressive individual plays by Aaron Donald. That's literally seals that game. So, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, I, the, I think the I, I I do think the issue is just how bad their offensive line is. Yeah. So you are talking about a team that gave up nine sacks in. Def- I mean, they broke every record, right? In the number of sacks, both in the Super Bowl and over the course of the postseason, they, in not a positive sense, they broke every record for the number of sacks that they allowed. I think the reason the Super Bowl disappointed me a little, it was close, but I am very disappointed that the Bengals do not at least tie that game. So we've talked now over what, probably the past six, eight, ten weeks now about when teams get the ball with under two minutes left, down by three. If you're a good team, I think at this point it's given that you should be tying the game up. We look at all the good teams in the NFL. You know, you look at like your Aaron Rodgers, your Tom Brady's. Oh, no, 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 no. Just because Sam is gone, it doesn't mean you get to speak use singular names in the plural. I love it. No, you look at all your elite level QBs and the good offensive teams that should be the teams that are making it into the playoffs, deep into the playoffs. You expect them to at least be able to get a field goal to tie the game. And I think with the time they had, with the weapons they have, I was expecting at least a field goal in that sense. And then after that first play, I was I was thinking they might win this game. And then to do neither really disappoints me. And I don't think it makes it exciting that the Rams stopped them. I think it's disappointing that the Bengals failed. So I kind of disagree. I think you're being overly harsh saying that there's an expectation that you should drive down the field and get the field goal. I think from the position that they were in when they got that first down near midfield and you have a field goal kicker who is as big of a weapon as they have, then at that point they needed, what, 10 more yards to have a chance that he could hit it and 15 more yards and you're pretty much saying it's a gimme almost. So I think in that respect, once they got to that position, I was expecting them to tie the game. 
I think there is a context which is neither team was moving the ball particularly easily on the other. So to think that it switches in the final possession when the pressure is at its highest seems unfair. The thing that I think would be questionable in the end was their decision. It took an extraordinary play from Donald. I don't think a lot of other players make the play that he did to make that tackle sort of mid-block on that running play. At the same time, the Bengals couldn't run the ball all game, so I don't really know why you're even calling a run play. And I, the I, thing, I think both coaches were guilty of the fact of they kept trying to run the ball, and okay, they got the occasional seven-yard pickup, eight-yard pickup, but fundamentally they were both getting stuffed all game long, and neither of them abandoned the run game. That's what blew my mind. I, agree, I completely agree with you. I, I was surprised that they ran it. The other thing that really surprises me is you, you look at the drive before with the Rams. What do they kind of decide? We're going to win or lose with our star player, right? We're going to win or lose with Cup. Why is P. Ryan in on the last drive of the game when you have Joe Mixon, who's a super, uh, super Bowl, a Pro Bowl running back and had a phenomenal year both running and receiving, and you have him out of the game in the last drive in the Super Bowl, he's arguably your second to third best offensive weapon on that team, and he's sitting on the sidelines. That Just for the fact that he then gives them a better pass option as well, that to me is stupid. The other thing, again, getting back to it, they didn't once run any quick screens to chase. They didn't do any end arounds to chase. I mean, these are things like – Get the best guys the ball when you need something. Like you look at Debo Samuel and the Niners. When they needed a big running play, they put Samuel in the backfield and let him run. You know, like live and die by by your best players. Don't live and die by by uh, P. Ryan running up the middle against Aaron Donald. Like that to me, I, I don't like that call. Uh, I think that's that reminds me of McVay in his first Super Bowl trying to overthink things instead of just letting the best players win or lose you that game. Yeah, I think it was a poorly coached game all around. The only thing that saves McVay there is that he won, if you see what I mean. I think if they lose that game, people are starting to talk about how McVay now has a record of completely losing the plot in Super Bowls. So I think for both two very highly thought of young coaches, I think neither one of them can walk away from that feeling as if they they did their jobs well. The only thing, one of them had to win. And in this instance, it was the Rams. And I think that they won in spite of their coaching, not because of it. And I do think, yes, when you compare it with the Niners and their ability to get Debo Samuel involved, I think it's harder. You know, Shanahan does an incredibly good job of doing that through his play calling. And also Debo Samuel is a kind of unique player in that respect. But still, you are right. And and they tried to go to chase on that final drive and you know, everyone's making a big deal of the fact that Chase was wide open on the fourth down play. Um, and there was also the miscommunication, I think, on what was it, the second down, maybe, when he overthrew yeah. him. When he Just was wasted a play. Yeah, he thought he was going, Burrow went deep, whereas Chase pulled up. Um, but I, I just, I didn't love it. And I did think, I did think when they got to midfield, they were going to kick the field goal. And I was hoping it was going to go to overtime. So, because I think then when you're a neutral and you don't really care who wins, then the best possible outcome is is overtime. But yeah, and here you hear people complain about the overtime rules in the Super Bowl even better. <laughs> yeah, 
And in the end, it also too, just because of the way it ended, it was such an anticlimax that yeah. in a sense, it was like, here we go. You didn't even realize it was over. Yeah. And then it was just like, well, Burrow's under pressure and the play was over instantly. I mean, yeah. I know people tried to make a big deal that he nearly made a play, but I mean, the receiver is miles away from where he's kind of thrown that ball. Like it's not that close, but it was just suddenly, I don't know, it's over. And it ended in the way that you would have expected the Bengals season to win with their total inability to give Burrow even two seconds to make a throw. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree completely. And yeah, for, for that last play for me. So one, it was strange. He almost throws right off the bat to the receiver doing the out route on, on the left and he's open. And I don't know why he didn't make that throw. That's what's kind of strange is he full like pump fakes it and then decides he doesn't want to hit it. And the guy was there. So that was disappointing from Burrow. And you could tell he kind of wasn't the same after he got injured that time. He really was hesitant. He wasn't trying to like zip the throws in like he normally does. And maybe that was on his mind. He didn't think he could put in the velocity to make that far of an out route, maybe. Um, but you're right. The play with that last play with Chase, he is wide open and, and he burns Ramsey. But like that's that's the Niners, uh, the Niners, that's the Rams defense, right? Like, wow, that's great. He was wide open, but the Rams have such a good up front that they don't give him the time to make those throws. So there was a lot of plays, I'm sure, where someone was deep and and wide open, had, had blown back to cornerback. But it's hard to do that when you have a great line that's constantly pressuring Burrow. So I think I think that's an unfair thing to say that, oh, he was open. Because, yeah, I'm sure there was so many plays like that. But they're, you know, Miller, Donald, Floyd, they were all over him all game. Like, they stopped that from happening. That's what yeah. makes their defense good. You know, you, you no, plug you're up those holes. You- you're 100% right. I mean, if they, you know, they send the house, which you also have to give them credit for, because I think some defenses would have decided, hey, let's not risk losing the game on this play, which in a sense, you do run that risk that yes, if their pass coverage suddenly, you know, if they're sorry, if their um, offensive line suddenly works for, you know, a play, and then you get Jamar Chase blowing by Ramsey and all of a sudden it's a touchdown, then you get criticized for why did you send so many players? Why didn't you have extra men in coverage? So, you know, that's the, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, but yeah, you can't, yeah, you're, you're going to be able to find people wide open. If you could tell every NFL quarterback that he, if he'd have half a second more or a second more, someone was wide open. I think you could do it on almost every play in the NFL. It's just the kind of nature of the game. So and, and you might even be able to say that Ramsey instantly saw there's a possibility he might have instantly saw that Burrow was in trouble. So you might have a, a defensive back who's almost stopping because he knows that at this moment in time, there's no way that the player who's running by him is going to be involved in the play. So it's a difficult one to assess. But I thought, yeah, it was a bad game. It feels weird that the Rams are Super Bowl. T- I, I think the big story of that playoffs is there's just so many teams who would have been knocked out along the way who will look at that and think, we should have been there and we would have beaten them. And I think basically almost yeah. every team, I think the Niners will look at that and think, wow, we could have manhandled the Bengals. I think the Chiefs would have looked at that and thought we would have just completely overpowered the Rams. The Bills would have thought that too. I think the Titans even will probably look at that and think, how do we lose to that team? The Packers even. You know, I think if you put the Packers in that situation in, you know, perfect playing conditions and you have Rodgers back there, I think they win that game so i think the real story of that is it's not so much who ended up being champions but the number of teams just an incredible number of teams who have felt like they should have been there 
Yeah, and I mean, I'll even double up on this. If I'm the Bengals, I am very disappointed we didn't win this game because you look back on this game and I think they're going to think, damn, we had so many opportunities. They did not play very well. OBJ went down. Stafford threw two interceptions. We had a plus two on the turnover margin. We had shut down their run game. You know, how the hell do we lose this game? Because if we play them again next time, you know, maybe they put up 30 points that game or 35 points. You know, like we held them to 23 points and we lost that game. I think even the as a Bengals player, you have to be disappointed because that is about as good as you could have gotten it to win the Super Bowl. It's not going to be that easy ever again. No, and I, I think I agree with you even more because I think if they're being in the kind of cold light of day and they're being realistic about how they even got there, they would say, we rode our luck throughout the playoffs. Then you can even point to, in addition to everything that you just said, you also have the freak no call on a 75-yard touchdown go your favor. You have that in, a di- in as well. You kind of had everything go as well as it could have done for you in the, over the past five weeks, and you're probably never going to get that again. And I, I think that would be – it's a tough loss because you always do have to think when teams lose in the Super Bowl, will they be back? Will they have as good of a chance? I mean, they need to overhaul their team to improve in so many areas to have any chance of getting back. I mean, I saw, the, for example, they're not even favorites to win their division next year. The Ravens yeah. are so, the Ravens are favorite to win the division with bookmakers. So, you, you know, you've, you've got a situation where you have a team that just lost in the Super Bowl might not even make the playoffs the following year. And that's without them. That's without any regression. That's just the fact that they're in that tough division and they're probably not that good. And yeah, it's got to be a tough one. I mean, I really looked at, and they lost the games for the reasons we thought they would lose their games in the inability to protect Burrow and also, they were not a very good team. You know, I kind of said going into the game, there were their ability to settle for three points. And it's not like they settled in that game, but they didn't punch it in and get touchdowns in moments they needed to get touchdowns. And you're just not going to win games with these field goals. So, and also, I mean, there was, um, there's one other point we've overlooked. The, the fluky missed extra point, which ended up being crucial. So you also have a team where the holder just drops the ball and you, you get a kind of free bonus point that as the game played out, it looked like, oh, wow, this might be the reason why the Rams can't just kick a field goal and tie the game, or that now that they scored a touchdown, the Bengals are still within a field goal distance. You know, they had kind of everything fall into their laps and they weren't able to take it. Yeah, and at that point, that had actually won me a nice prop bet for over two and a half players to throw a pass because that counted as an incomplete pass by Heckler. But oh. doubling down on what doubling down on what you said, the the Bengals even got more lucky because even their trick play worked for a touchdown. Right when uh, Mixon threw the yeah. the little halfback option pass, I mean everything yeah. was working at that point. You know, versus like, versus Cooper Cup. If you want to knock him, <laughs> he missed a wide open Stafford. Wide open, which and I they were saying OBJ in. would have taken that if he were if he weren't hurt, and, and he probably would have hit him. Which I also saw as a fun fact. They meant that uh, Cooper Cup is the player with the lowest passer rating to have ever won the Super Bowl MVP. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that one. All right, so I want to finish up the Super Bowl talk by going through some. Uh, I guess, controversial topics I want your opinion on. 
if Sean, uh, let's start. If Aaron Donald were to retire tomorrow. Now, this has been supposedly he had told some people in the media that he wanted to win a Super Bowl. And if he had won, he would quite possibly walk away from the game. And that was the last thing he had to accomplish. If he walks away tomorrow, is he a Hall of Famer? So I think he, I think there's two answers to that question. Do I think he will be? Yes. Do I think he should be? No. I do think there's an element that you need longer careers and for everything that he's done and how remarkable it is. And I still think there has to be some factor of longevity and not just, Hey, now I've won it. Let me walk away. And, and yeah, let's admit that I was in my prime. I was so, so good. I think I have to disagree with you on that one for the fact that I also thought he hadn't been around, but he actually has been around for, I want to say, eight years he's been in the league. Because what? He's 30, right? He's been in the league for eight years. And let me read off his stats. He is eight years, eight-time Pro Bowler, seven-time first-team All-Pro, three-time Defensive Player of the Year, Deacon Jones Award, 2010 All-Decade Team, all rookie team and now a Super Bowl champion. I mean, the seven-time first-team All-Pro is pretty hard to say that isn't deserving. I would say the majority of people in the Hall of Fame are five or less first-time yeah, All-Pro. I find defensive players are so much harder to assess because there's so many moments. You know, Aaron Donald has achieved a level of star status, which in part is because of how dominant he is. But he's achieved such a level of star status as a defensive player that is unusual. And so I think that that helps him then with some of the awards and accolades that he has managed to receive because most of the time people can't name a defensive player. You know, I think the average NFL fan, if you really went up to them and said, hey, tell me any defensive player from the team you support, I think you'd get blank stares. And so the fact that Aaron Donald, now this might be the counter to my argument, the fact that Aaron Donald as a defensive player has managed to make himself a virtually a household name, at least within NFL fandom, is both a testament to how good he's been, but also it may have meant that he has achieve certain things that his play alone would not have done had he if he were not as famous as he is if you see what i mean it's kind of like with the mvp voting it's a lot easier and it kind of touches back on the idea too of even when i said well i think tom brady would have won the the super bowl mvp if it had been tom brady and not matthew stafford i think the aaron donald argument is kind of similar that he's on a he's the tom brady of defenses at least in terms of name recognition. I, I agree with that, but I think the difference is those awards are voted on by coaches and people who do know more than defensive, not the Pro Bowl. That that I don't know how they pick Pro Bowls anymore. They should just get rid of them. But I you know, like the all pros and defensive players of the year, those are you know, those are voted on by the media. So I'll I'll give you a comparison. So this is Warren Sapp, right? Who many would argue was one of the the best defensive tackle the generation before Aaron Donald. Warren Sapp is a Super Bowl champ, a one-time defensive player of the year, 
four-time first-team All-Pro, two-time second-team All-Pro, and a seven-time Pro Bowler, and also 90s All-Decade and 2000s All-Decade. So, you know, when you're comparing to that, Donald has surpassed him a ton in those accolades. He hasn't played the number of years, like you're saying, which I agree is, is something. Um, but, you know, so he's played two, looks like 14 seasons or 15 seasons, Warren Sapp played. So almost double the amount of seasons. But in half the amount of seasons, Donald has accumulated two to three times the the accolades. So I, I think Donald is a surefire Hall of Famer. Um, no, I, look, next, I agree. He's definitely in the Hall of Fame. All right, so let's get a little trickier now. The next one, the one that's been debated the most. Does I'm this say no? If you're going to ask me about Matthew Stafford, no. Matthew Stafford is he a Hall of Famer now? So I think 100 percent he should not be, because otherwise, what they're basically saying is in the modern era of quarterbacks, because statistically, you know, all of any quarterback in the modern era is just going to rack up incredible stat lines compared with people in the past and i think we still haven't managed to adjust to that when you see players consistently you know the numbers that you will hit if you're just an nfl quarterback for 15 seasons you're going to blow anyone out of the water who played pre you know 2005 basically what they're saying is if you play in the modern era and you win a super bowl you're a hall of fame quarterback and that's going to be a tough one over time and so I definitely don't think Matthew Stafford is. I think he's the narrative surrounding Matthew Stafford that he was just this unbelievable player on a constantly terrible team in Detroit and completely overlooking the fact that he had the best wide receiver in the league for a sizable chunk of his career, with, but which all kind well, of, yeah, yeah. well, no, not all, yeah, but yeah, he, yeah. which he, he kind of wasted in some respects and that that team could have been a bit better had he played at a slightly higher level at times and also has significantly contributed to his stat lines. I, there's no way he should be a a hall of famer. I fear that he will be. Now, do you have any more uh, controversial questions for me? I do. I have one more actually. All right. I think this is a better argument than Matthew Stafford is Odell Beckham jr. A hall of famer. If mm. what, let's so let me preface this by saying, I think it's almost been confirmed he retore his ACL of the same knee. I think this could be the end of his career. I don't know if you can come back from that again. I know he's going to try, but I think it's safe to say he's not going to be the same on a knee that's now been surgically altered twice in the past two years. So let me run you down OBJ's stats. OBJ is a Super Bowl champion. He's a three-time Pro Bowler, a two-time second-team All-Pro, and was the NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year. He was the fastest to 100, 150, 200, 250 career receptions, and the fastest to 3,000 and 4,000 receiving yards. Um, He also has... Uh, most games with at least 125 yards receiving in the first three seasons, most receiving yards in the first two NFL seasons. And that's when he was out 
for four of those games. So in the first two years, no one's been more dominant I, than him. Can I, can I almost stop you here? Because yep. you're, you're front-loading his statistics, and this is going to be the issue with OBJ's uh, Hall of Fame candidature. Like, if he had been able to maintain the pace he had in the initial season of the Giants, then of course he's a Hall of Famer. But kind of running through his accolades of he was the facets of this, he was the most of this in the first two or three year period, who cares? Like, you're not, you don't, being rookie of the year doesn't make you a Hall of Famer. You know, Jamar Chase is not a Hall of Famer just because he broke a ton of rookie wide receiver records. And I'm going to guess that Jamar Chase, for example, is probably going to break almost every record OBJ has when unless he gets injured for achievements over the first two or three years of his career. So, and and then you, in addition to that, you have to throw in OBJ came, came around at a time when obviously receiving yards are significantly up on where the, again, where they were 10 or 20 years ago. And similar to what you said, he was also mostly on a team that wasn't very good and where he was going to get, you know, garbage time yards in games where the other team didn't really care if, they gave up an OBJ touchdown towards the back end of the game. So I don't think he is a, is a Hall of Famer. I think there are better wide receivers than him who have achieved more than he has who have not made the Hall of Fame. So I don't think he is. And again, it just if I start thinking that OBJ is a Hall of Famer, I think that that means that there are 10 to 15 current wide receivers in the NFL who are Hall of Famers. And that feels like too many. Yeah, it's when you look back on his career, it is a shame because his first three seasons are some of the best seasons an NFL wide receiver could put together for their first three years. I mean, we'll see what Chase does his next two, but OBJ had over 1,300 yards and over 10 touchdowns in each of his first three seasons. So that's really, really good. And then from there, he has two mediocre seasons with – the Giants and Cleveland after that. And then, and then that's it, you know, so you have, had he kept at least somewhat of a decent pace from his first three years, I think he is. And talent wise, he might, he, I think he has the talent of a hall of fame wide receiver, but he doesn't have the numbers to back that up. Like you can't just say, Oh, you know, he is one of the, he was one of the best wide receivers for two or three years, so he deserves to be in. You need to accumulate stats over years. Longevity is a key to the Hall of Fame, so I don't think he gets in. At least he has one iconic catch for his highlight reel, one more than Stafford has throwing. So, <laughs> Yeah, and look, I also I think he – I mean, there's a lot of players who don't make the Hall of Fame who you say have Hall of Fame talent. You know, that's – yeah. That any and and also I think the impact that he's had on his teams in terms of his personality and his behavior is also a factor. And there's definitely players who haven't made the NFL Hall of Fame because of their attitude and their behavior. So, and not that OBJ has done anything awful, you know, by that by NFL standards, but he's definitely had moments where he has not been a positive impact on his on two different occasions and two different teams on his team's locker room. And I think you have to factor that in as well in, in, in addition to the numbers. But yeah, for me, he's not a Hall of Fame bar. You know, I, I think I don't think his career is over because I think I think his career might be over in the sense that that injury might mean that he is a shadow of what he was at his best. But I think he will make a comeback and I think someone will sign him just because, you know, if he's cheap, 
and who knows, maybe he's still willing to get paid in Bitcoin and by then Bitcoin's worth nothing. So there's also <laughs> that possibility. But, you know, I think I think he'll be, I think we'll see him again in the NFL. As to how good he is when we do, I don't know, but I think we'll see him. Yeah. It, it, again, I like the guy on the field. I love watching him. I, I love the intensity he can bring. But at the same time, does he have to be crying the entire second half on the sidelines? I mean, he has the emotional intelligence of a four-year-old. How is no one I, – I, it's gotten to a point where I honestly don't understand how no one in his camp has sat him down and kind of said, like, maybe you need to see someone to develop the emotional side of, of your career because it is ruining your career. Like, he, was, he looked like a four-year-old kid on the sideline with the towel over his head, like half in tears the entire game. We get it. You're hurt. Root your team on and root for a win so at least you can get it, be a Super Bowl champion. You don't have to cry the entire time. Well, I'm not going to shame anyone for being in touch with their emotions quite like you are, Frank. I do think that you have. But there's a difference between being in touch with your emotions and being over the top. I think think the decision you have to make is maybe if you're an emotional wreck and you're really struggling, go to the locker room. If you're really in in a dark place, which I could understand if you're trying to process the thought that, you know, I'm sure he's sitting on the sidelines at that moment thinking, I may have been on a course to having a historically great Super Bowl. I may have been on course to be a Super Bowl MVP and to really prove everyone who has doubted me over the last two or three years wrong. And also then processing this injury might be the end of my career. And so there is a lot of that he has to deal with in that moment. So I can understand why it could be overwhelming. But I do think, yeah, there's an argument to be made there that if you are struggling that much, go to the sidelines. There's another argument to be made of how how real were the feelings versus how performative was the idea of him being distraught and wanting to be on camera still as the, uh, the sad crying person versus if he had just been sitting there getting on with watching the game, you know, does he get as much camera time? So I think that those are my only doubts, but... Overall, it didn't, it didn't bother me as much as it bothered you. Well, it's just I'm used to it from the Giants, just seeing him be an emotional roller coaster on the sidelines every game. But, I mean, from his standpoint, barring the severity of the injury, when he went out in that game, that was a win-win situation for him. Because, one, he goes out, and now if they lost that game, he can come out and say, look how good I was doing. I was carrying that team at the time. Had I not gone out, we win that Super Bowl. They win that game. He says, look, I had a great game and we still won the Super Bowl. The, I mean, obviously the injury I, I, supersedes I, no, all I, of I, that. I mean, I, dis, I disagree with If this with were a sprained ankle, if that were a sprained uh, ankle, I think no, he can walk no, away uh, I don't, I don't with think a it's better a contract situation. I don't think it's a win-win because, I mean – I think he's MVP of that Super Bowl if he doesn't go out. So you can't say it's a win-win because, you know, he there's it's almost certain that he would have had a better stat line than Cooper Cup based on the way he'd started that game and also based on the performances he'd had over the course of this postseason. I mean, he was the MVP of the game against the Niners. Like the way that he was once he had found his form and the fact that he was now Part of that is because defenses have to really focus on Cooper Cup. So it's not kind of 
because Cooper Cup wasn't doing stuff. But he was, I'm, I have no doubt that had he played that entire game, he finishes with, you know, 120 receiving yards and two plus touchdowns. And, you know, if Stafford has still thrown a couple picks, he's MVP of the Super Bowl. And the OBJ love goes to an entirely, you know, goes off the charts. I'm sure he feels like it robbed him of really being able to, you know, stick it to everyone who's doubted him. Um, and the kind of massive chip on his shoulder that he seems to carry at all times, feeling as if people dislike him and have doubted him, even though I think he spent most of his career being massively hyped and with people saying how much they love the way he plays and what he does. But yeah, I mean, and, a, and kind of a slightly bad look for the the Cleveland Browns, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Baker Mayfield does not look good in any of this. <laughs> Who no. is not in any commercials. I think, I think Baker Mayfield's commercial career is done. Oh, I think. But maybe his acting career is just beginning. <laughs> well, I mean, I think his NFL career is in some respects in a little bit of doubt because I don't know if he'll be a starting quarterback next season anywhere. So, you know, Baker Mayfield probably has bigger things to worry about than whether or not he's in a, a commercial next season. But I definitely think we've we've probably reached the end. We've probably reached Baker Mayfield's saturation. And until he comes out and does something that justifies the idea of him being the star of multiple commercials every day, I think we're probably not seeing too much of him. So I guess speaking about commercials, whether I know this year you are able to watch the commercials, were there any that stood out? Well, so I would say no. I don't think that the commercials were that all that great for the most part. I mean, I know the one that everyone is talking about is the Coinbase commercial. Um, certainly watching it, I was confused. I think in the bar, we thought that there's something had gone wrong with the TV and like the QR code for the, for the bar's menu was flashing across the screen. So <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> um, so I think that was definitely a general consensus at the moment. Um, I don't like the Coinbase commercial. I know that it was successful enough. I know their website crashed. I know that they'll claim that it was a massive success. I think that Super Bowl commercials are about coming up with something funny and entertaining and spending $10 million to have a QR code bounce across like a screensaver is not funny or entertaining. So they kind of miss the point of what a Super Bowl commercial is supposed to achieve, which is that, yes, they'll probably talk about it in the future because of the fact that it crashed their website, but I don't think it's not quotable and entertaining, and, and that's what people are watching the commercials for. Yeah, there. to me, there weren't that many good standout ones. The thing that I struggle with is the choice of celebrities sometimes confuses me because I don't – maybe their fame just doesn't recognize with me enough. So, for instance, uh, oh, which one was it? I think it was T-Mobile maybe with Dolly Parton. Is Dolly Parton that famous? Like, are people seeing yeah. that and be like, oh, my God, Dolly, it's Dolly Parton. But do they care? Dolly Parton. <laughs> I think Dolly Parton's actually a, a really good choice for a Super Bowl ad. I would disagree with you because I think she has – I think almost everyone – I think you can have a 20-year-old to an 80-year-old who's going to recognize Dolly Parton. Whereas you run the risk that you have someone who's super popular with people aged 15 to 25 and everyone older thinks, I have no idea who that is. So I actually think yeah. Dolly Parton 
Dolly Parton's universally loved in the sense that she's managed to develop a career where she's not annoyed anyone at any point. And she's both loved by, for example, feminists and non, she won't call herself a feminist. So the non-feminist movement still likes her, (laughs) even though her kind of career embodies a lot of feminist ideals. So feminists like her, she's kind of managed to straddle a number of fences over the course of her career. I think Dolly Parton's a pretty good choice. What did you think of the Michelob Ultra with Steve Buscemi and Peyton Manning and Serena Williams? Uh, I thought it was all right. And actually, what's this, the yeah, um, the golfer? Uh, oh boy, uh, not uh, not the asshole, the one who hates him. <laughs> Brooks Brooks Kepka. Kepka, there we go. <laughs> Just blanked on Kepka's <laughs> name. He was also in it as well. Or they had like two or three of them. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have too many stand out. Then there was the court. What was the commercial with Tommy Lee Larry Jones David? and? No. Oh, that that was a the Tommy Lee Jones one was a Toyota commercial with Tommy Lee Jones, um, Leslie Jones, Rashida Jones, and Nick Jones. Nick Jonas. I thought was the I thought that was the point of the joke. Yeah. Wasn't it one of the Jonas Brothers? I know. I was, yeah, I think so. I was just kind of making the joke as well. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, but for people who don't haven't seen the commercial, they'll go, who's Mick Jones? But you picked um, up on it. <laughs> well, yeah, because I saw the commercial. <laughs> um, uh, that one confused me because I did not, you said Leslie Jones? Yeah, I didn't know who that was either. So I was kind of like, I get that the joke here is that they all have the last name Jones. And her name, her face looked vaguely familiar. But it felt as if she was in a commercial based on the fame of the other two at the moment when it was. She was in a commercial that she probably didn't, her fame did not warrant. And it was just the fact that she had the last name Jones where she was sneaking in there. That that was at least my kind of external impression. So I guess the ones that were getting the most recognition was the Chevy commercial with the Sopranos. People loved that one. The I new generation. What a sellout. You would hate for... that because you're anti-American. But what a sellout for one of the greatest uh, shows in television history to just now have your theme song and two of your actors appearing in a Super Bowl commercial shilling cars. You know, like I just, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at some moment, I get that actually those two people probably need the money. I mean, I'm sure they're doing very well for themselves. Well, David Chase did the commercial too. The creator of Sopranos did the commercial, David Chase. Well, I mean, but just how, how, and that even annoys me even more because David Chase, you know, someone who's supposed to have sort of embraced the art of television and, you know, won't tell us what the ending of the Sopranos really means, but he will instead make a Sopranos (laughs) commercial for the Super Bowl to sell a car. I mean, I would have preferred, you know, if they had spent five, 10, $20 million given most of that to David Chase and had a 15 second commercial where he just said what the ending of the Sopranos meant. And I would have been like, much better. That just shows you what a follow that David Chase will do. That David Chase will do anything for money. Yeah. What about the, the so the other ones people were talking about? We actually already discussed the Amazon one with uh, Scarlett Johansson and her husband. We discussed that last one. What about the Hellman's one copying off of the old school Terry Tate commercials? Oh. Office linebacker. Yeah, I mean that. That just what a cop me out because it was just. 
Yeah, it just seemed like a complete. Just bring back Terry you Tate. Sto- <laughs> you just stolen the idea. That, that I get his name is Mayo. I get it, but it's not that great. And the other, the other part that sucks about that is Jared Mayo. People know, but he's not that high of a name. It's not like Luke Keekley, right? If 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 Keekley were a a ketchup or something, that might be a little. I better. don't know. I don't know if Keekley is even the bad. He's not Peyton Manning. I don't okay. think Luke Keekley still has household name recognition. But yeah, it's not like you're selling Manning's mayonnaise and when Peyton Manning turns up and does something, everyone goes, oh, I get it because his last name's Manning. I do agree with you. I think most people will have watched that commercial and thought it was a fictional like linebacker character. Yeah, and they've just named him Mayo. The only good part about that is when he hits Pete Davidson and he says he's got a hittable face and Pete Davidson agrees. <laughs> that was actually, I, I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, otherwise you had uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger on, I think that was like one of the Chevy electric car commercials. That was okay. You had Miss, uh, Dr. Evil come back. You had the cable guy come back. Um, I'm trying to think if there were any other. Cable guy like, was a rough one because Jim Carrey looked really weird. Couldn't work out whether they were trying to. I couldn't work out whether they were trying to make him look younger, and in the process, that made him look older. It was very strange. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Larry David on the FTX commercial. Yeah, that was fine. That was okay. I Um, I don't think there were any. I don't think there were any iconic commercials. I'd say that. No. In, in some ways, Coinbase is the only one that will kind of be iconic, and I think will be iconic for the wrong reasons. And there's um, always ones I, that disappoint too, right? Like the Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen one. You thought that one was going to be really funny because it's Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen, and it just really wasn't. The Lay's commercial. I think that, Frank, I think I think most people don't. I don't think there's a, as many people as you think look at something and go, oh, that has Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen. It must be hilarious. I think a lot of people think that. Well, it's true. Most people are morons. But yeah. But now, uh, switching a little bit from the commercials, a little bit back to the football, not to discuss the Super Bowl, but I did see that ESPN have already come out with their, what they're calling their much too early NFL power rankings for next season. Just thought I'd be interested to, who do you think is ranked number one in their power rankings for the 2022 season? Either the Chiefs or the Bills. So the Chiefs are number one and Bills are number two. And then I guess the interesting thing, where do you think the Rams are? Five. The Rams are three. And where do you think the Bengals are? Seven. Bengals are five. I think in both the Rams Strong. and the... I think that's way too high. Give me the, Then give me the top seven. So you got the Chiefs, the Bills, the Rams, the Packers, which is mind-blowing if Aaron Rodgers is leaving. That's assuming Rodgers is there, I guess. Well, their little blurb is, so they have something saying what do they need to do this offseason. So for the Packers, it's get Rodgers back. And then they say their whole offseason hinges on whether Aaron Rodgers wants to return. I mean, all indications are that he's leaving, right? So... I mean, I know he gave, I don't know if you saw his speech when he received his NFL MVP award. No. His speech was, 
First off, I'd like to start by thanking the Green Bay Packers fans and for the incredible 17 seasons I've had with the organization. That is not the speech of someone who is planning on returning to no. the Green Bay Packers. He doesn't, for, and for a guy who's won, does he do that every time he wins the MVP from now on? And I'd like to thank the Green Bay Packers fans and the incredible 19th seasons, you know, like, but he clearly is leaving. So I think there's already, that's way too high. The Bengals are five. The Niners are six. The Cowboys are seven. The Titans are eight. The Patriots are nine. And the Cardinals are 10. Wow. The Patriots is a huge exaggeration there. I think that's way too Do you high. really think? I mean, who do you think is, who do you think is, has, was not, I didn't name, who, has, who was not featured, who you think should be higher? It is tough because I feel like now that I think about there's it, holes. what other There's teams, holes everywhere. Yeah. What like, are the next the two? Up. What are the next two? I'll tell you if they are or not. Uh, so the Chargers, who I'm assuming you would probably bump into your top 10. I would put the Chargers over over the Patriots. The Ra- the Ravens. Mm, and tough. then the Colts. No. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, the Colts are tough because I've now read that uh, Wentz isn't coming back. So Wentz was going to be a one and done. So I don't know what that means for them. Um, their defense I mean, when is you, phenomenal, but... When you look at other teams who made the playoffs, so you got the Buccaneers at 14. I, I feel like that's too high with the loss of Brady and who knows who yeah. else. You have the Raiders at 15. Maybe you could bump them up. They were at times bit. very good this season. Uh, you have the Steelers at 18. Depends on who's a quarterback. I mean, it depends on who's a quarterback. And yeah, yeah I mean. What are the Giants? 25. <laughs> Uh, the Giants are 27. The own, oh. Below them, you have the Jets, the Panthers, the Lions, the Texans, and the Jags. I think that's a little unfair. They should be 25. <laughs> and then I guess the only other little bit of NFL news following up on a story we touched on in the last episode with the Kyler Murray drama. I don't know if you saw that the Cardinals official Instagram account kind of trolled him back. So he had deleted all but two of his photos and they deleted all but two of their photos. They kept, they then put one of the same, one of the photos was exactly the same as what he had up. Then the other photo where he had a picture from college, they had a picture from when he was drafted. I thought that was an interesting move. Yeah. They've since kind of put they all changed their content it. back. Because I went to look, yeah. as soon as I read that, I went to look and it had already been changed. But also following up on that, there was a report released by Chris Mortensen of ESPN where I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's not, it's not super long for those who hadn't heard it. Um, he said that the Cardinals have their own concerns about Murray with sources describing the 2019 number one overall pick as self-centered, immature, and someone who points the finger. Arizona coach Cliff Kingsbury said that he will be self-scouting where he can provide better alternatives to help Murray, according to sources. Meanwhile, select veterans on the team hope to reach out to Murray on how the 24-year-old can better handle adversity. Despite the acrimony, the Cardinals expect things to calm down and for Murray to be their quarterback of the present and the future. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that will save them, which is kind of what we touched on in, in the last episode, I don't know where he goes. 
And so I think fundamentally, you know, there'll just have to be some hard truths kind of delivered maybe by both sides. But one of the messages that Kyler Murray is probably going to receive is where is it you think you're going? And where is it you think you're going that's going to be a playoff team? Uh, and I think yeah. that's once that reality sets in, they'll find a solution. Whether that is he signs a nice big contract and everyone says they're happy all of a sudden, who knows? Yeah, and so there was also a part about him feeling like he was the scapegoat of that playoff loss. And, I mean, to me, this does show if, – if this is genuine, it does show some immaturity because – I don't think the Cardinals are scapegoating him for the loss. I think everyone in the world has said yeah. he played a terrible game and he is a major reason they lost that game. That's not the Cardinals coming out and saying, hey, look, we would have won that game if it weren't for our quarterback. That's the world yeah. saying Murray played a terrible game and they lost so like not solely, but majorly because he couldn't perform to the level he normally does. And that's I think you have to own that. I think being mature is saying, you know what? You're right. I didn't have a, I didn't have a great game. I am probably a major reason we lost that game and I'll make up for it and I'll do better and I'll put in the work in the off season. You know, I think feeling like you're the scapegoat is a very immature response to that type of performance. Well, also you're the quarterback, you know, if you, you know, you're going to, you're going to live by the sword and die by the sword as the quarterback. You know, you are the one who, when you win, you're going to get, look at Matthew Stafford. He's getting all the plaudits coming out of, I mean, Cooper Cup's getting a ton too and Donald, but you know, Stafford is getting a ton of praise for his contribution to the Rams winning that Super Bowl. That's because you're the quarterback. If you are, you know, you can be a mediocre mediocre quarterback and people will give you a lot of credit. If you're a mediocre wide receiver, no one is ever going to be pulling you aside at the end of the game and saying, wow, how'd you guys win that incredible performance by you? So, you know, the nature of the beast is if you're the quarterback, you'll get all the plaudits when you win and you're going to get all the criticism when you lose. And sometimes it will be unwarranted. Sometimes it will be fair. And I think in the case of that playoff loss, he definitely didn't play well. Whether or not he wants to say there were other contributing factors, sure. In a performance, a team performance that bad, obviously there were. But it's not as if he was doing everything he could to drag them out of that and they still lost. He was terrible. They were terrible. The coaching was terrible. And you're the quarterback. You're going to get some of that blame. I mean, people are talking about Cliff Kingsbury getting fired. It's not like he's the only, you know, it's not like only Murray has got some criticism coming out from that playoff performance. Yeah, I completely agree. And it doesn't help when we talk, we've been talking about iconic plays, all podcasts. And the only thing I can think of from that playoff game is one of the most iconic interceptions I have ever seen. Yeah. I think you can replace the word iconic, iconic with pathetic, but yeah, I think that's it. That, that, that pick six represents the difference between famous and infamous. And uh, that will go down as one of Connor Murray's infamous plays and he needs more famous plays now uh, I, I know we've, we've got some exciting guests coming up on the podcast and obviously if you don't already and you're listening to this please subscribe to the podcast leave a review share it you recommend it to a friend follow us on so our social media accounts unfortunately one guest that we were not able to land i don't know if you saw frank but novak Djokovic had a sat down and had an interview with the bbc where he kind of explained his vaccination stance although not really but did reinforce the idea that he is willing to miss tournaments in the future 
because of his vaccination status. He said that he is perfectly happy. He will, if the decision is him getting vaccinated versus him playing in a tournament, he will not, he will not get vaccinated. He's happy to miss. It looks like he'll miss the French open. He, he at the moment would miss Wimbledon. He, I think also would miss the U S open with the current vaccination rate restrictions. So he is fundamentally saying he's willing for his career to end. If it's the choice between getting vaccinated and continuing to play. Listen, I mean, that's, that's fine. If that's, if that's the stance you want to make, then I am okay with that. My only issue is I don't want 10 years from now when people ask him if he's the greatest of all time, even though he doesn't have the most grand slam wins. And he says, well, I would have, if I was allowed to play, then that, I don't want to hear that. I'm completely fine. If that's his stance and he wants to make it, that's, you can do that. You have the money, you have the fame. It's your choice at the end of the day. That's great. But then don't use that later down the road as evidence that you could have been that much better had you been able to play in those because you could have, but you're choosing not to. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I watched the full interview or at least whatever was released. Who knows how it didn't appear overly edited, but, uh, and it wasn't particularly long. But what I didn't like about it, what frustrated me the most is uh, he was asked, he was put in a position where he was told he is being a kind of, he's a kind of poster child for anti-vaxxers. And he was put in a position of, to ask whether or not he was comfortable with that. And he said, well, no one's ever really asked me about, he said, I have no problem with vaccines. No one's ever really asked me about what my position is on vaccines, even throughout this entire thing. No one has ever asked, sat with me and, and asked me what my position is on vaccines. So I find it very weird that I'm being thrown into the anti-vaxxer camp. Now, that was kind of the end of that statement. He did not clarify that and then say, look, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I am just, for whatever reason, not comfortable with this particular vaccine, which I wouldn't have necessarily been okay with, but at least then. But the fact that this is what frustrates me throughout this process, he keeps saying, hey, everyone is saying this about me and... They don't know if it's true, but then he's not actually coming out and saying it's not true. You know, it's just, hey, you all thought this about me. It turns out you're right, but it's really annoying that you thought this about me without me confirming it first. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> but hey, drama that is likely to drag on as there's a number of tournaments that he will miss out on. And I guess the other bit of news about not vaccination scandals, but obviously there's the big doping scandal coming out of the Olympics in the Winter Olympics where a Russian athlete tested positive, uh, failed her drugs test, and will be allowed to compete in upcoming events. And I think a number of people have wondered exactly how this is coming about. And also, I don't know if you saw, but the U.S. sprinter uh, Richardson, who was denied a spot at the Tokyo Olympics, after testing positive for THC, which you know was a big drama in the moment, has basically said that the only difference between what happened with her and what is currently happening with Camilla Valieva is the fact that Valieva is white and Richardson is black. So basically accusing the IOC and uh, the doping relevant doping agencies of of being racist. Um, I think the I think the def- not not agreeing necessarily with the logic, but I th- believe the interpretation the IOC is taking is more that as Valieva is only 15, she's probably in a position where she might not be aware of what she's putting into her body. 
or at least not in a position to easily influence what is being put into her body. And so for that reason, they're choosing to not punish her as harshly as they might punish other athletes. Yeah, I I would have to get clarification too because I always forget if Richardson was not allowed to compete by the U.S. Olympic Committee or by the actual International Olympic Committee. I think because it was by the I U.S. I thought it was the U.S. I think it was the U.S. Which is different. I don't um, think she would have been allowed to by the IOC either. I think. I think it was kind of nipped in the bud before that could even become an issue because the oh, she pun pro- intended. Yeah. <laughs> because because the US decided that the drugs test meant that she couldn't be considered. I think they probably would have ended up in that situation anyway. Um, but it was a decision taken by the US Olympic Committee first. Yeah, and I thought they also said that if she wins a medal, this is the Russian figure skater that they'll still do the doping before they hand out the medals or something like that. They said she won't be part of any medal ceremonies, I believe. So I, I basically, they think they're putting, they're putting an asterisk on her medals ahead of time. And then to be determined later, which I have to admit, if I were an athlete would really annoy me because I mean, I'd be pleased to win a gold medal at any point. And I think she's favorite for one of the upcoming events as well. So very likely to win gold. Um, it would be a slight anticlimax if I attended the Olympics and then a known drug user won gold and was sort of given gold in the moment. And then later on, I get mailed a gold medal and get told, hey, you know, that silver you got, actually you got gold and you don't have that opportunity to stand on a podium and hear your anthem and sort of celebrate in the moment. Uh, I'd still take it. It's better than not winning a gold medal, but it would... It seems like you're denying some other athletes their dream Olympic experience, and, and, and that's a shame. I also – yes, she's a white female, but she's also Russian. I, I can't imagine that people are highly favorable of Russia at this moment. And if anything, <laughs> I feel like they would try and punish her more. <laughs> well, I do think – I mean, it does make it I, – I do think that's maybe why they are tiptoeing around certain situations because obviously – She's Russian, but there's not even a Russia. You know, we're still in a situation where Russia as a country is is banned from the Olympics. So you're you're dealing with, you know, the Russian Olympic Committee, the kind of Russian group of athletes versus the country of Russia taking part. There is this element of, I, I think the Rus- Russians have taken the approach of the Cincinnati Bengals on that final drive. Hey, if you just cheat every time, sooner or later they can't just keep punishing you and she might be benefiting from the fact that it feels as if the ioc has kind of dealt out its biggest punishment to the country itself and then definitely currently in this very delicate climate with russia maybe not willing to look as if they are they're trying to look neutral in the entire global situation and not have russia get annoyed that oh no oh you're trying to we've got a situation in ukraine and you're stealing gold medals from us in in the winter olympics with how dumb these things are who knows i I mean that's the thing that i still don't really understand and i will admit i'm not deep into this but if if you're going to punish a country for a 
humongous doping scandal that was spanning decades or however long, however many Olympics it did, then as unfair it is, it is to the athletes who maybe aren't, why do you let anyone from that country compete? Because my idea would be if you told the athletes, no, I'm sorry, I understand maybe you didn't test positive, but your country is just so sneaky and so untrustworthy that you're not allowed to compete, then at least that would start to provide some pushback from the athletes to their Russian Olympic Federation to say like, can we stop this? Can we you know, make this more public? Can we make it more transparent? Something, because now I'm getting screwed and I wasn't the one who was doing it. But when you let the players compete anyway, it defeats the whole purpose. Russia doesn't care because it still says Russia. The athletes don't care because they're still competing. So who got punished? And, and it, it won't do anything because they're still doping. It didn't do anything. Like if you're going to punish, you need to punish. Put your foot down and punish. <laughs> no, I do. I do kind of agree with you that it does seem you know, it's kind of meaningless semantics as to whether or not they're representing Russia. Uh, and if I were Russian, I would still view that as the Russian team. I would still take pride in supporting the very clearly Russian athletes. It's still so, in the name. Like, yeah, it's, it's, come on. So, I, and I understand it's difficult because you don't want to just, in the going forward, punish these athletes who have done nothing. And who, so I, I kind of get it, but I would have stripped them I would have said, look, you get to compete as countryless athletes. You know, you know, there's no Russia in the name. You just get to go as kind of Olympians, you know, of something. We'll just play the Olympic anthem if you win a medal. And, you know, there's no – or you just tell them, hey, look, it's tough, but there's nothing stopping you from switching your allegiances and going and representing a different country. You know, it's just, the Olympics is not particularly strict when it comes to the ability to switch from one country to the other. It's not as if it requires, you know, oh, I need to go and live there for five years and naturalize in order to suddenly start becoming, represent other countries. So that was the alternative, but I don't know. I, I, I feel difficult about that. I feel, I feel torn a little bit over that particular punishment. It definitely doesn't feel sufficient. And yeah, it doesn't seem as if it has solved the problem. So in that sense, the punishment seems totally pointless. Yeah, I agree. I just, it, it just is meaningless to me. I mean, it's literally still says Russia in the name. <laughs> and this one in particular, I mean, I, I don't understand this ruling. I, you have to, eventually you have to make a stand. I mean, it, your your first punishment clearly didn't work because they're still doping. So you have to do something stronger. Instead, you, you backtrack even further and still let them compete. It's It's pathetic. Yeah, no, it has seemed seem pointless. Speaking of Olympics, tomorrow, like we discussed the previous podcast, women's hockey, Canada versus USA for the gold medal. So that will be something I'll be watching Wednesday and Who do you think happily will report back on Thursday. Um, so Canada won the first game they played 4-2, to two, but the U.S. outplayed them for most of the game. They are the underdog right now. I think the U.S. will win. They played a better game. They just couldn't score. I think if they can put, I mean, I know this is the obvious thing, but put the puck in the net more and not just, you know, get get missed opportunities and, and is, off the post Sam, and things like is that. Sam back on the podcast? That feels like yeah. the level of analysis Sam would have contributed in the past. If they could just score more than the opposition, I think they'll be okay. Yeah. 
But I mean, they out they outshot him by like twenty shots, and you just have those games sometimes where they just nothing goes in. And I think as long as they don't have another one of those games where no matter what they do, they can't put one in. I think I think they'll beat them. They're definitely more physical, which is interesting. It should be a good game, though. Looking at the also odds, with Canada, that, looking at the odds, Canada got, are fairly heavy favorites. Yeah. I mean, with that, you also have Champions League coming back this week. So Tuesday and Wednesday, right? Yeah, I mean, the games have literally just kicked off in the uh, first set. So PSG, Real Madrid, and Sporting Man City. And then, and then yeah, Champions League and European football is back. So I guess maybe next episode we can we can dedicate a little bit of time to that, even if a few of the ties will already be at their midway point. But a chance to look ahead at, at some of the matches that are to come. On that note, should we uh, wrap things up? Yeah, I'll tell you one thing that we're not going to have either starting or ending the podcast is The Rock coming on and giving his hype up speech because I don't know why so many people thought that was amazing. I thought that was one of the dumbest things I've ever seen or listened to. Uh, It uh, just bothered me so much. And what was with his pants? Why was the the waist of his pants like two feet long? Did anyone else notice that? (laughs) No. He had so much, like, I don't know what you call that part, but from your inseam up, whatever that part of your pants is called, it was like two feet long. <laughs> it was very strange. Very weird choice of clothing. But I I don't get the whole fascination with The Rock and what he, what he said just didn't even make sense half the time. It was just him <laughs> using words with his face and flexing his I arm. Like, it's really weird. I like that we I like that we were wrapping up and now we've uh, we've got into your opinions on the rock. <laughs> uh, all right, well, we'll leave it at that. We'll talk to you later. <laughs> See ya. Cheerio. <laughs>